The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. You know that song by Bonnie Raitt, The Angels from Montgomery? I feel like we have the angels in Macondry. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Thank you all. Some of us this month, as part of the minister's book group, are reading Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison's classic of the American canon, published in 1952 for which he won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1953. In reading about him, I found out that he was the Albert Schweitzer Professor of Humanities from 1970 to 1980 at NYU. Notable for two things. One, Albert Schweitzer was the humanitarian doctor who was also a member of the UU Church of the Larger Fellowship, so connected to us in our religious movement. But also what struck me is that Ellison's time at NYU overlapped the years when I first moved to New York City and lived just a block from the heart of the NYU campus at Washington Square Park. Something about the sense that I probably walked by him or found ourselves in the same corner market was amazing to me. A reminder of how much of the classic and central books and conversations on race have overlapped with our lives, yours and mine, the chapters. Written in 1952, Invisible Man is in part so powerful still that many people have been calling and saying how grateful they are to be reading it, many again, because of how contemporary the book is. And often that feeling of something being still contemporary in a novel is to its credit. But with this book, the fact that it feels contemporary, and particularly in its assessment of race and the way it affects and infects the American psyche, it feels heavy and dispiriting. You know what I mean? Behold, a walking zombie, a character who is mad like the fool in Shakespeare's plays are mad, says, in other words, one of the wisest and most clear-eyed of the bunch in the moment. The man, when he says this, he's speaking to the protagonist of the book, another black man, one intentionally left unnamed throughout the work. Behold, the madman says, already (laughs) he's learned to repress not only his emotions, but his humanity. He's invisible, a walking personification of the negative, the most perfect achievement of your dreams, sir, the madman says, pointing to a white, wealthy philanthropist. And already by that point in the book, not even a hundred pages in, you have seen from the inside all the ways that the unnamed protagonist is pushed to be invisible, divorced from himself, in order to survive in part. That invisibility, 
It's how someone I love used to say it was at the suburban train station near where he lived. A person of color, he said, it flabbergasted him how on so many mornings people didn't seem to see him, white people, how they'd walk into him. And then one day, commuting at the same time I saw it, a well-dressed suburban professional white woman walked right in front of him. I mean, so close, I thought he could probably smell her shampoo. And it was at once so incredible and so appalling and so egregious. Even now, when I picture that moment, which I still can, I thought of how it would make me want to shove the woman or pull her up into my face and ask what in God's name she thinks she's doing on this spacious platform. But also how Ellison writes in 1952, it's when you feel like that out of resentment you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're a part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fists, you curse, and you swear to make them recognize you, and alas, it is seldom successful. Seldom successful because of all the other reinforcing norms and behaviors and structures we have that reinforce the root cause, right? And the end result, huge blinders between you and seeing one another's humanity. Poor stumblers, Ellison writes. Neither of you can see the other. History is not history. That's the theme of the service, right? Ellison's 1952 version, pulling forward, threading through the present like the deed to Mari's brother's house with that restrictive covenant. In the one sense, just a few words on paper, but in the other, like finding a body buried in the basement, the sullying of the grace and protective veneer of anything you'd call home, welcome, safe. We know that history is not history. Heaven knows we've been talking about it a lot as a nation. Some think that the current conversation, I mean, it's happening all over the place, but a big piece of it, that if you wanted to find a point where it started, that it started at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charlton, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Mother Emmanuel, as the church is known, because it's the oldest African Methodist Episcopal Church in the South, with a long history of being part of the civil rights movement. How it all maybe began on June 15th, 2015, a group of people gathered, poured over scripture, sacred scripture in a Bible study when a white man whose website was filled with white supremacist and Confederate war-glorifying imagery and words entered into the church, and when he was done, nine members of that community were dead, others injured. 
And among the dead was the senior pastor, who also happened to be, as you may recall, the state senator, Clementa C. Pinckney. At the time, it was one of the two deadliest mass shootings in America at a place of worship. But since then, it has been surpassed twice, including the one at a Pittsburgh synagogue tree of life that I know many of us were thinking of yesterday as we held our breath. It was following these murders, you may recall, at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church that the South Carolina General Assembly finally voted to remove the Confederate flag from the state capitol grounds. It was this moment, the Southern Poverty Law Center believes, was the catalyst to push to remove Confederate symbols across the nation. New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu would follow with his administration removing four such Confederate statues that he said, quote, celebrate a fictional sanitized Confederacy, amen, and go on to point out the obvious, not that these statues were in fact glorifying some beautiful way of life, but, quote, after the Civil War, these statues were a part of that terrorism as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. Amen. Some of them had to be removed at night, remember, with the workers wearing ski masks and other things to protect their identities to keep them safe during and after. According to the Washington Post, 36 monuments were removed in 2017. The year of the Charleston Massacre. Not everyone was on board for the work of healing, though. I'm sure you remember also another date around this time, August 12, 2017, when folks gathered to protest one such statue, one of pro-slavery general Robert E. Lee, that was going to be taken down in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so hundreds of neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and Ku Klux Klan members gathered in what was one of the largest white supremacist rallies in U.S. history, one that also ended in violence as one white supremacist man in a car mowed down counter-protesters, ending in many injuries in a horrific moment, the images of which none of us will forget, and the death of one such counter-protester, Heather Heyer. Strangely, after that, there was actually a lull in 2018 and 2019 during which, get this, only eight monuments to the Confederacy were removed from public places in America. In 2019, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's now doing a report periodically under its Whose Heritage Project, noted, Three years after the Charleston Massacre, 1,747 Confederate monuments, place names, and other symbols are still in public spaces both in the South and across the nation. This includes 780 monuments 
more than 300 of which are in Georgia, Virginia, or North Carolina. 103 public K through 12 schools and three colleges named for Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, or other Confederate icons, 80 counties and cities named for Confederates, nine observed state holidays in five states, and 10 military bases. All the memorials in the United States valorizing the Confederacy, a secessionist government that waged war to preserve white supremacy and the enslavement of millions of people, they write, amen. More recently though, spurred by the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, the effort to remove these statues has been renewed and in 2020, 94 were taken down. Sometimes temporary counter monuments went up, experimentally erected, like after Floyd's murder, CNN reported about a hologram of George Floyd that was cast over a defaced statue of Lee in Richmond, Virginia. And there is talk about what permanently can go up in their place, acknowledging the power of monuments and choosing as a nation to think about how we will remake them for future generations. In the 1981 introduction to a reprint of his book, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison wrote, quote, there is no hiding place. No, because what is commonly assumed to be past history is actually as much a part of the living present as William Faulkner insisted. Furtive, implacably, implacable, and tricky, it inspirits both the observer and the scene observed, artifacts, manners, and atmosphere, and it speaks even when no one wills to listen. Which is to say history is not history. It is a restrictive covenant written in black ink and hatred at the bottom of a house deed, right? It is found in an unguarded moment, etched into the foundations of what you'd hoped was your dream home, but reminded resides still in a nation on menacing ground. History is not history, right? It's the lanyard that you need to wear to try and be heard and seen despite all of your qualifications and expertise, though none of that will break through the diminish diminishment that white skin would give you free of charge, no qualifications necessary, irrevocable right of birth. History is monuments to hate and evil that have to be taken down at night. It's synagogues and churches with histories of liberation. Places people who are diminished in the world find resilience and reminders of their true value, God-given inherent worth and dignity, but are held hostage in and shot under attack. And maybe it's also 
Isn't it also the woman at the suburban train station in her fancy shoes and pearl earrings who violates her space as if you didn't have any, because to be honest, she doesn't see you still, and how that marks the beginning of your day, reminding you of who you are to those who still disproportionately shape this nation world we live in, unexamined biases reinforced in a thousand filaments that bind us, even if we will not wish to hear them, as Ellison says, that bind us tooth and claw, heart and soul. Ibram Kendi writes, in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. admitted, quote, We've had it wrong and mixed up in our country, and this has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion, devoid of power. And Frederick Douglass wrote, Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. When Mari and I were checking the history of restrictive covenants, trying to understand whether and how her brother and we were protected against them, all of us as a nation, we had to reach out to a lawyer, to Rochelle Fortier-Wadibia, to help us unpack it. And in the debate, we were wondering, are we protected by the Supreme Court ruling of Shelley versus Kramer or the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act of 1968? that was passed after King was murdered. But then I thought about it, and in a larger sense, it didn't really matter, did it? I mean, whether it's one or the other, both can be undermined by those who are put in power, either in Congress, who I think can remove legislation that has been put in place, or who are put in the Supreme Court by a president who's elected, and those people in the court, those justices can reverse precedent, can't they? So to Mari's point, just as we're learning in the debate about Roe v. Wade, the right to bodily reproductive self-determination by women, a right, a protection can be given, but also perhaps taken away. So not surprising then that King's family has asked that on this particular weekend, tomorrow in particular, that there be a call for no celebration without legislation. They're arguing that Americans not honor this day, but honor King through action to protect the right to vote, because of all it protects. Martin Luther King III, who's chairman of the Drum Major Institute, the nonprofit started by his father, said in a statement to the Washington Post this week, quote, we're directly calling on Congress not to pay lip service to my father's ideals without doing the very thing that would protect his legacy, pass voting rights legislation. The demonstrators are demanding that the Senate pass the Freedom to Vote Act. You know, I know there are folks who say that politics and religion shouldn't overlap and Sunday morning isn't a place for talking about legislation, and I, I see the point, the attention we want to pay to all that. But legislation protects and enshrines all kinds of biases, right? 
and gives all kinds of evil the sheen of legitimacy and the weight of institutional enforcement. So religion, our religion, lives or doesn't in part in Caesar's realm. And the cost today, what we're talking about, of course, is human invisibility, suffering, a culture that sanctions hate, and nothing less than the soul of a nation still. Why? Because history is not history. Not yet. May we make it so. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, everybody. Blessings of the vision and the work. Amen. I'm Mari Magaloni Ramos, Worship Associate. As you may know, I'm first-generation Mexican-American. My family lives in South Texas. To our great joy, about 12 years ago, my oldest and youngest brother's families each had a baby girl born three months apart. Besides my son, they are their abuelita's only grandchildren, and they are the light of our lives. My two brothers live close to one another in a neighborhood near an excellent school that my nieces attend. My oldest brother, a teacher and writer, is about to retire and was considering the idea of moving to a new house with more space for everyone, but the current living situation is ideal, so instead of moving, it was decided that it would be better to stay where they are and expand the house by adding an office. As they live in a historical section of town, they knew that building codes would be strict. They made sure to do their research and pulled up the deed to the house. In addition to building restrictions, this is what they found in the deed. It states, this sale and conveyance is made, however, subject to the following covenants and restrictions, which form a part of the consideration for this conveyance. One, that neither the grantee nor any subsequent owner of said property shall sell or lease the same to any person of Mexican or Negro blood, except as domestic servants. Number two states the dimensions and placements allowed for any building uh, erected on the property. Number three, the grantee for himself, his heirs and assigns, agree to the above and foregoing conditions and restrictions and further agree that in the event that any such conditions and restrictions are violated with the owner's consent, that the title to this particular lot or lots upon which said violation is made shall revert to and become the property of the grantor herein, his heirs and assigns. The original owner is named. How is it that this language has never been removed over the years? We can laugh with incredulity at its brazenness, but the reality is that outrageous as it is, this language lives in the deed to my brother's house. 
Or we can say, don't worry about it. It's 2022 and the 1968 Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, and the Supreme Court Shelley versus Kramer took care of that. But look at what happened to the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Look at what's happening right now to Roe versus Wade. Are the foundations of fair housing law and president also subject to the whims of political climate? The uncovering of the deed's sickening covenant is not our first encounter with systemic racism, of course, but experience doesn't soften the blow. No matter how prepared we try to be, it's impossible to have our guard up all the time. This time it assaulted my family while we were dreaming of the future. Maybe that's racism's superpower, the cynical ability to identify the sacred paths people travel when their hearts are laden with hope in order to ambush them. I wrote a poem about this. It's called Under the Floorboards. Our home is haunted by ghosts who vow to hate us in perpetuity. Their disdain for us so fundamental, so absolute. It is stored in the deed to the house like a strand of putrid DNA, like a curse. The ghosts are angry. They are wild and real and strong as they were in life. When our guard is down, when we sing our children to sleep, they pounce from dark corners, scratching, biting, screaming their hate. They follow us everywhere. I've seen them at the market. They haunt our schools, our hospitals, the bank. They sit at the pews in church. You tell me you don't believe in ghosts. You say you've never seen one. I tell you that you have. They manifest as empty spaces, gaps where I and mine have been omitted. Turn out the lights. Let your eyes grow accustomed to the dark. Quiet your voice. Let yourself be still. Then, when you are nothing but a beating heart, whisper my name. You'll see. They are relentless. I am not Carmen Barsity, though I would be proud to be her. <laughs> but these are her words her reflection for this morning. (laughs) 
Sometime last year, I gave a reflection in which I began with, I am white. I think I began by repeating it a few times to add a little weight to it. I can't remember all that I said in that reflection, but I find myself needing to say it again, I am white. And what it means to have white skin is something I need to pay attention to. This past November, Selena Lane began working with us at the Faithful Fools. Some of you know Selena. She was the director of Up on Top's after-school program for five years. The knowledge and connections Selena brings in terms of access to city resources and contacts to get people into housing or address issues of eviction, as well as making everyone capable and accounting in the work required is invaluable to our work of accompaniment and advocacy at Faithful Fools. Though I have been doing this work in San Francisco for more than 24 years, I am learning a great deal from her. Within the first weeks of her working with us, Selena asked if we had lanyards with ID badges. In her short time with us, she was already engaged in complex accompaniment situations with a couple who was moving from an SRO into a new supportive housing unit. Coordination and collaboration with management in both buildings was necessary. I was curious about her question, as we never used ID badges as faithful fools, but certainly we could make one for her if she would like. A few days later, Selena and I went together to another supportive housing unit to assist a woman who'd been referred to us as she was at risk of eviction. Selena was the one who was the main lead and had set up the meeting. Whenever we can, we go two by two as faithful fools, especially when situations are more complex and a bit overwhelming. It was in walking into the building, and then later, as we were conversing with the building manager and her caseworkers, that I noticed we were not equally received. We both are generally confident and capable in the work we do. And either one of us could engage with the managers, but when I noticed that there was a deference to me, I stepped back. I had to check myself at that moment. Did I put myself forward? Did I unconsciously put myself in the customary place of taking the lead? Did I unconsciously... Hmm. We walked into the building together, partners in this mission, who was conscious of all the dynamics in those few moments, I'm not sure. Selena carried on without missing a beat, exchanging the necessary information, and we left with a commitment to return to assist the woman needing assistance. That night, I woke up around 1 a.m., and the first words that flashed through my mind were, my white skin is my lanyard, my ID badge. 
I had obviously been working out in my sleep Selena's request for an ID badge, as well as our experience of the afternoon before. In all of my years of working with people and having to interact with management and case managers of all kinds in all settings, I have not needed a badge to justify my presence or receive answers to questions as I have assisted people. My white skin has been my assumed past. I will not ever know what it is to walk through the world as my colleagues do who are rejected or violated for being black and Asian or not fitting a gender norm, but I can have empathy. Empathy being the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. As a woman and a woman-founded organization, I do keenly know the pain and struggles of existing in a very white male structure world, being excluded, dismissed, considered naive, and I'm well aware that there is work that must be done to turn empathy and awareness into action, for this is not an isolated incident. When I shared this reflection with Selena, she listed off a number of other incidents of being stopped from entering places this past week that I had not been aware of. I call myself and all of us, not only to notice but to name aloud what we notice, to pay close attention to our own accustomed or intentional ways that keep others out of buildings and rooms, out of meetings and decision-making processes, and insist that we correct our ways. For as Dr. King said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Karen's, Carmen's reflection. <laughs>